You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to need them today. If you'll turn them to Luke chapter 5, I'm going to go through some introductory texts. Uh, Luke 8 is actually our text for the next week. Um, But next week is Mother's Day, but we will look at Luke 8. But then the week after that is Graduation Sunday. The week after that is Baby Dedication Sunday. The week after that, we will get back to Luke 8. All right, so what I wanted to do was to offer us some reminders of some things that will prepare us for our two to three week conversation concerning Luke chapter 8. And so you stay with me and uh, see, I've listed most of the text up here on the screen. And then, of course, at some point we will survey through Um, Luke chapter 5. So what I want to present to you is something that I think sometimes we forget, and that is the Bible, the Bible is not a flat text. What I mean by that is the command to not eat pork does not carry the same weight as God is love. All right, don't eat shrimp, God is love, not the same, not the same weight. And Jesus seemed to think that in Scripture, that not all the teachings of Scripture carried the same weight, that they had the same level of authority. And before you wonder, look here at Matthew 23, 23, because Jesus is offering a correction to the Pharisees, to religious leaders who had somehow developed a faith that allowed them to think that the law of Moses was a flat text and that every command of the law of Moses carried equal weight. And Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law or the weightier matters of the law. And he says, justice, mercy, and faith. And then Jesus reminds him, it isn't an either-or proposition, but there is a cart and there is a horse. And he says, these things you should have done without neglecting the others. So there are weightier matters. But it doesn't mean we neglect all matters. We just need to put them in their proper place. And Paul would have said the same thing. He, he did say the same thing, except in a different way. In Romans chapter 13, verse 8, and you can see it on the screen, where Paul, and you need to know the context, but you can, you can check that out on your own. I just want to lift this out. And he says, Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another, read it with me, has fulfilled the law. Now he says this, he says the commands... Uh, Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. All really good ideas, right? They're commands. And whatever other commandment, I like how Paul just shortcuts it. Whatever else that you can think of, all are summed up by this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. When Paul says it's all summed up, Paul is saying this is the supreme commandment. There there are weightier things. You can take it all and you can sum it up. It is summed up in this statement. This is the weightier statement. They all matter, but this is the creme de la creme. This is it. And Jesus says the same thing, really. So Paul takes his cues from Jesus in Matthew 22 when he said, the greatest commands are to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, everything hangs on these two things. Everything hangs on this. Every interpretation of everything else you're going to come up with is going to hinge upon, be based upon, hang upon the idea of loving God and loving neighbor. You can't love God and not love neighbor. That's not the deal. If you love God, you love neighbor. That actually is the deal. 
So even there's a pecking order. But everything else hangs on loving neighbor. Now when the Scriptures are read as a flat text, everything is equal and even. Then we begin treating the Scripture as the church's constitution of God-inspired authoritative propositional truths to be both proclaimed and practiced, making all the commands equal in weight, rather than the Scriptures being what it is, and that is a dramatic unfolding of the story of God's redemptive work in and for the world. And in doing so, I wonder if we have inadvertently turned Scripture into a disincarnated text. We, we cut the life route out of the holy text, and we allow it to only address our minds. Because now we can quote a bunch of Bible verses and propositional truths and moralisms and doctrines. And what we do is we make disincarnated disciples who are more concerned with proper ideas than we are living our lives faithfully following Jesus on the mission of God. And like many in our culture, what happens is the Bible loses its influence in our lives, and the Bible is no longer able to reorder or reprioritize our plans and our dreams. And so now, the Scriptures are, are understood as something other than what they were intended to be, and frankly, than the claim they make about themselves. When the Scriptures are understood, understood as the true story of God's intention with the world, the Scriptures then propose a different world to us and invite us to live accordingly to that world. The Scriptures invite us into a way of understanding who we are as human beings, who God is, His intentions with the world, and our place in the redemption story. If we're to listen long and hard enough, we will begin to see that Scriptures present to us a counter-imagination, a different way of seeing the world and others, ourselves, which leads to a different way of being in the world with others as ourselves, which will lead us to a different way of doing life in the world together. And we end up seeing, really, if the Scriptures propose to us a different world than the one we live in, we end up seeing in that proposal, God saying, this is what life looks like when Jesus is Lord. This is what life looks like when Jesus isn't Lord. This is what life looks like when Jesus is Lord. Which one do you want? And when the Scriptures are understood as the redemptive story that God is telling and His intentions with the world He loves, then we become compelled to submit to Scripture. Submit to the influence of Scripture, which then moves us beyond propositional truths to be obeyed, and by the power of the Spirit comes to us as the product of what God is doing in Jesus Christ as Lord and King. Scriptures then begin to live and breathe. But I've come to believe that that many Christians treat the Bible as a flat text where everything it teaches carries the same weight. Or at least we think that certain things carry more weight than the others, but yet we sort of, in some strange way, contradict ourselves because really what we're doing is we're thinking it all carries the same weight. And, and it carries the same weight, and we end up misreading and misapplying the Bible. When we, when we think all Scripture carries the same weight, we end up misreading and misapplying the Bible. I grew up in a tradition that believed that Scripture was a flat text, in a sense. Nobody would have ever said it this way, but we believed that everything carried the same weight. And so everything mattered to the degree that it was all worth fighting over. 
I grew up in a tradition that told me that I couldn't sing a song to God with that guitar. And so it all carried this heavy weight. And that if I did sing a song to God with that guitar, that I was unfaithful to God. So before you think that that is just something strange to my tradition, let us just be humble for a minute and look at historical theology and let's see. Let's look at the history of Christians, the history of the Christian movement, and see. Let's look at ourselves and see how we treat the Bible at times as a flat text where everything carries the same weight. We end up misreading and misapplying the Bible. And what we do is the Bible then has more authority than Jesus himself. We'd never say that. We'd never even intend that. But that ends up the result. Case in point, think about it this way. Why would Christians have wrestled, even wrestled with racism and classism if Jesus really had the ultimate authority in our lives? Why would Christians have ever wrestled with or used the Bible as a justification of slavery if really Jesus had authority in our lives? It was in Gettysburg. And on the wall, see, I'm from Georgia and my wife's from Alabama, so we're from the real south. I'm talking, I ate possum stew. What did you eat? All right, that's what I'm talking about. Don't ever do that, by the way, if you did. All you who are affirming me, that's not something to be proud of, y'all. I mean, come on. So I'm at Gettysburg and I see framed a book written by Reverend so-and-so from Alabama that says, Slavery, a God-ordained institution. If Jesus is really the authority over the Bible, and not the other way around, then how do we get there? Well, the answer, I think, is shockingly, and maybe even offensively simple, it wasn't. If we had really learned from Jesus, why would Christians be so quick to escape the world and avoid the things in our world that we see as unclean and dark and purposefully move to, away from it when we see Jesus always purposely moving toward it? And I've said this before, I think many people in interpreting Scripture end up reading the Apostle Paul's teachings over the teachings of Jesus. In other words, what I think we end up doing is we end up interpreting Jesus through the lens of the Apostle Paul rather than interpreting Paul through the lens of Jesus, which can inadvertently leave us with some pretty poor doctrines. And it's seen, frankly, when we always sort of default to Pauline categories of doctrine and we don't move so quickly to deal with the things that Jesus said as well. And see, I believe that our view and understanding of Christ could, should shape all understandings we read from the Bible. And Christ himself should be the supreme authority of the church. Not the Bible, because the Bible itself claims that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. The Bible is the inspired witness to Jesus. 
And that's what Jesus was trying to say to the Pharisees in John chapter 5. In verse 39, when he said that you pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. And you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. And then in verse 46, in the same breath, Jesus says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about, say it, me. But the irony is, is Moses didn't write about Jesus, but he did write about Jesus. Do you see the difference? Moses, nowhere in the Old Testament, the law of Moses wrote, Jesus will do this or Jesus will do that. But yet Jesus said, everything Moses was saying was about me. In other words, everything Moses was trying to get after was about me. The problem is Moses didn't have the words to articulate me. So me had to come. (laughs) Which is exactly what John is trying to say in John chapter 1. See, John chooses a very, very interesting word to his diverse audience when he says this statement. He says, in the beginning was the Word. In Greek, that's logos. And we'll talk about that in a minute. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed His glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father. Listen, full of grace and truth. Not half full of truth. Not like getting us close to truth. Not even getting us close to grace, but full of grace and truth. See, John, when he chooses this very particular word to describe God the Son and talk about the incarnation of God and the person of Jesus, he uses in the Greek language the word logos. Logos literally means divine logic. So check out what what John is saying, that Jesus is the divine logic of God. Jesus, the person of Jesus, is what God has to say to humanity. What is God saying to humanity? Jesus. What does God have to say about that? Jesus. But we go, well, 1 Corinthians 5, when we need to start with Jesus. Jesus is the divine logic of God. Jesus is the true and living logos, divine logic, word of God. Jesus is what the law and the prophets point toward and bow to. Jesus is what the Old Testament was trying to say but could never fully articulate. Jesus is the perfect word of God in the form of a person. God could not say all that he wanted in a book So he had to say it in a life. And that life was Jesus. The person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity. Both the Old and New Testament Scripture, Testament is another word for witness, so both the Old and New witness of Scripture are holy, sacred, and inspired words from God. We study the Bible. We learn from the Bible. We allow, us to, allow it to teach us. We allow the Bible to rebuke us. But we are supposed to do so with Jesus as our instructor. Because Jesus is what God has to say to humanity. And everything is commentary about Jesus. And when the Scriptures are understood in this light... 
we then see what God is trying to do in the person of Jesus. We see that the person of Jesus is what God has to say to the world. And the reality of following Jesus means we must be faithful. Because Jesus is what God has to say. And the inspired witness, the Holy Scriptures, the Bible points us to Jesus from the beginning to the end and back again. If you look at Luke 4, and you hear Jesus' first sermon in Luke 4.16, where Jesus proclaims that the poor can know that there's good news, and that freedom can come to the captives, that those who are blind can recover their sight, and the oppressed can be set free, and that the Lord's favor can fall upon all. What you find out in Luke 4 is when Jesus is done with that sermon, everybody who heard it was like, you rock. That was great. That's what they, they were amazed. I mean, isn't he just Joseph's kid, but the brother can preach. And then Jesus starts to talk about something in the same breath. And he starts to talk about how his ministry is going to be like the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And he begins to talk about how Elijah was sent by God and he could have helped any number of widows in Jerusalem, but instead God told him to help a Gentile widow. And then Jesus, without a breath, says, and my ministry is going to be like that of Elisha because Elisha was told by God to heal a leper, and he could have healed a number of lepers in Jerusalem, but instead God told Elisha, listen to this, to heal the leper who happened to be the commander of the enemy army. And they heard what Jesus was throwing down. They picked it up, and as a result, they wanted to throw him out of a cliff. Because they didn't like what Jesus had to say. Because what Jesus was saying is that God is not afraid to be on the people that you may feel are the wrong ones. He's not afraid to be on the wrong side of people. And so if the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, then the question is, what is he saying? What is God saying? I think God is saying that he isn't interested in our social politics or our national politics. He will side with all people, especially those who are downtrodden and oppressed, that God will side with those who do not share our ethnicity, race, or social standing. Jesus is what God has to say to humanity. And if he is, and Jesus demonstrated and said that, then that's what God is saying. In Luke chapter 5, in the first 11 verses, we see Jesus call Peter, James, and John, three ordinary blue-collar workers, three guys who couldn't have cut it in rabbinical school, three guys who never sat an hour in seminary. That should be a humbling word for us seminarians. And yet, he recruited these blue-collar fishermen to follow him and to learn from him and to help him literally change the world. Literally change the world with these ordinary, uneducated fishermen. And if the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, then what is God saying? And I think what God is saying is that He can and He wants to use the ordinary to do the extraordinary. And if we believe it and we receive the invitation that Jesus has offered us and that invitation is to follow me, then we must be willing to lay aside anything that gets in the way of following Him. That's anything. 
And that there's no one that's going to be too unintelligent or too intelligent that Jesus can't use. But don't be surprised when He uses those that you do not believe are qualified. Because to quote the refrigerator magnet of Christianity, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. You can buy that at Lifeway. On t-shirts, books, magnets, and coffee mugs. In Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 12 through 16, we read another story. And we see Jesus not only heal the leper, but He touches the leper. Now, to many of us, that may not be a big deal, but according to the law of Moses, when it was read as a flat text, and the law of Moses had authority over Yahweh Himself, According to the law and in the interpretation, you could not touch a person that was unclean or why? Why could you not touch a person that was unclean? Because it would make you unclean. You'd have to go through all kinds of ceremonies, all kinds of rituals in order to be back into the presence of God. And yet Jesus, without a question, not only heals this man, but touches this man. And if Jesus, if the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, then what is God saying? And I think God is saying that He's willing to touch even the most unclean among us. And He's especially willing to touch those that society would quickly marginalize and consider unworthy. And that Jesus can offer healing to the deepest of wounds. That there's no wound too deep for Jesus to touch. And for Jesus to heal. And what I love about it is God's not going to do it in an impersonal way, but in a personal way. If we will cry out to Him to heal us. And then you keep going in Luke chapter 5 verse 17. And we see Jesus' teaching moment interrupted by a man and his friends. I mean, Jesus is bringing the Scripture, right? And all of a sudden, two guys and another guy who's paralyzed on a mat bust through the roof. I've got to admit, I'd be a little upset over that. He's having a moment, and these men come, and they break open the roof, and they, they give Jesus this friend who is paralyzed, and his friends just want him well. And what we see in this story is that Jesus gives the paralyzed man something different than he ever expected. Because of this man's faith, Jesus offers him forgiveness from his deeper wounds and for the paralysis of his heart. He forgives this man of his sins. And, of course, a dispute breaks out. People begin to argue whether or not Jesus has the authority to do that. Because Scripture says, and Jesus, to prove his authority over all things, including his authority over Scripture, says to them, fine, I'll show you that I have the power. Hey man, get up and walk. And the man gets up and he walks. See, if Jesus would have only healed this man of his physical paralysis, this man would have walked away a wounded sinner. But because Jesus has the authority to do all things, this paralyzed man walked away a whole man that day. Healed by the shalom of God, by the wholeness of God. And if the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, then what is God saying? 
I think what he's saying is that God has the authority to do whatever he wants, however he wants. And like this man who only wanted physical healing, but walked away healed physically, emotionally, and spiritually, Jesus offers to all people, all people, more than we could ever imagine. And not only can God heal our physical hurts, but He can make us whole from the inside out. He can offer what no one else can, and He can offer us something better than we ever imagined if we'll come to Jesus. And if we'll stay with Jesus. In Luke 5, verse 27 and 28, we see one of my favorite texts. It's quite scandalous, actually, but we don't often read it as scandalous. But see, Jesus invites a treasonous, national traitor to follow him. A man named Matthew, who was a tax collector. And before you think he was just merely working for the IRS... You need to know what his vocation really was about. He was a Jew who was working on behalf of the Roman government. And, and they were unduly and unfairly taxing the Jewish people. But Matthew was given a quiet authority to overtax the Jews however much he wanted, and then he could keep the difference. So tax collectors were very wealthy people, but they were also traitors and thieves of Jewish people. And not only was Matthew a national traitor and a thief, Jesus invites him to be a leader in his movement. And not only that, Jesus puts Matthew in the same tribe as Simon the Zealot. Does anybody know what Simon was as a zealot? He was a member of the Zealot Party as a Jew, and the Zealot Party were radical extremists who tried to kill Romans for taking over Jewish people's lives. And so Simon would have much rather killed Matthew, who was a traitor to the Jews, than ever do business with them. And Jesus comes around and says, Simon, I want you to come over here and be my boy, and Matthew, I want you to come over here and be my boy, and let's go about doing the work of God. Man, that would have split the church. But that's the historical like, truth of the text. And if the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, then what in the world is God saying in that? That God will call even those we would consider the most despicable among us to join him in his life and mission, and we don't get to choose who it is. Ever. And then let us not be surprised when it rubs us all kinds of the wrong way. And then Jesus in Luke chapter 5, verse 29, we find him catching some public heat from religious leaders. You know, the people who were people of the book, people who knew the Bible. And he catches this heat from the religious leaders for sharing a table with more tax collectors and sinners. And the problem here is that Jesus doesn't look like a holy man. And he doesn't act like one either. 
And, he, and then Jesus reminds the religious leaders that these kind of people that the religious leader said he didn't need to be around were exactly the people that he wanted to be around because these are the people that needed the healing. Their lifestyles and practices, though they may be covered in sin and their lives broken by it, needed a healer. And if the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, then what in the world is God saying? And I think God is saying to us this. If God wants to eat, drink, laugh with, and love those we might be considered the most broken of society at the table of fellowship, if He wants to, not that He's willing to, but if He wants to share a table with these people, then we should too. And the religious leaders had an understanding of what it means to be righteous. The religious leaders had an understanding of what it means to be righteous that moved them away from sinners, that moved them away from the brokenness, that moved them away from the darkness, that said you can't even share a table with them. But Jesus had an understanding of the righteousness of God that moved him in closer to the sinners, that moved him in closer to the darkness of society. In Jesus, God reminds us that it is hospitality and embracing love that prepares the heart for conviction, not accusation. And that it is hospitality and embracing love that stirs a desire for change in a person, not judgment. And in Jesus, God reminds us that we do not have a right to choose who sits at the table with Him. And if our interpretation of Scripture proves that otherwise, we may need to go back and look at Jesus. Because even Jesus in the night of supper was instituted, shared the table with a traitor. Only Jesus can determine who gets to have a seat in the presence of God. And I think Jesus made himself clear in what he has to say to us. That anyone is invited into the presence of God. Anyone. And so John, in chapter 1, reminds us that Jesus is what God has to say to humanity. And that the divine logic was in the beginning. And the divine logic was with God and the Word or divine logic was God and He was with God in the beginning and the divine logic of God became flesh and took up residence among us and we observed His glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. See, maybe some of the problems with the divine logic who became flesh, Jesus, is He's completely illogical to us. There's nothing logical about what Jesus does or how He does it. Especially as a Christian sometimes. Because I hear Paul tell me, evil companionship corrupts what? Good habits or good morals, and yet I see Jesus doing what? <laughs> Surrounded by what we would call evil companionship. And I know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and that Paul, nor Peter, nor John, nor James would teach something contrary to Jesus. But if I'm reading Paul that way, and I'm seeing Jesus do something else, 
I may need to reread Paul again. And I might need to start in Corinthians chapter 4 before I try to move my way to 6 and 9. And I might need to just go a little further ahead and start with Jesus. See, because Jesus, though He is claimed to be the divine logic of God, is oftentimes running up against our human, Christian, American logic. And we can get angry at each other over what Jesus said. Or we can just humble ourselves before the Lord and let the Lord just change me. Because I don't know the logic of God outside of the divine logic of Jesus, who is the Word that became flesh. Because Jesus is the true and living Word of God. And Jesus is what the law and prophets point toward and bow to. Jesus is what the Old Testament was trying to say, but never could fully articulate. Jesus is the perfect Word of God in the form of a person. And God couldn't say all that He wanted to say in a book, so He said it in a life. And that life is the person of Jesus, because the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity. And as His people, we are called by God to speak His truth to the world and to one another. And if Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, then all we tell humanity and all we tell one another must be seen in the life and ministry of Jesus. Because everything that Paul and Peter, James and John taught was commentary on the life of Jesus. That is their claim, not mine. And here's the most difficult thing. If we interpret something as truth from Scripture that allows us to marginalize others based upon social standing, ethnicity, or gender, or to, justly, or to justify injustice or demean one another, then we're interpreting Jesus incorrectly and we'll probably need to step back and ask if we're interpreting the New Testament correctly. And the only way we can do that is if we're humble enough, no matter how long we've been a Christian or how little we've been a Christian or how many seminary classes we've sat in, to be willing to do that. Because as one who believes in the inspiration of Scripture, I don't believe Paul and Peter, James and John would, by the inspiration of God, teach something contrary to the life, teachings, and ministry of Jesus. So let's be sure to do as all of these inspired writers did. And let's look to Jesus as our starting point. And then our ending point. Because that's what it means to be faithful in our proclamation and demonstration of the gospel of the kingdom of God. So Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 beginning verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance of the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves where we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Him. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Image doesn't mean reflection. It means representation. Jesus is what God looks like. 
He's the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Jesus in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, even before the Bible, even before mine and your opinions. And by Him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. First place in everything. He's first. I'm like tenth. My wife's like ninth. My son's like nine and a half. For God was pleased to have all His fullness live in Him. All His fullness. Not half of His fullness. Not a smidgen of His fullness. But all of His fullness. And through Him to reconcile everything to Himself by making peace through the blood of His cross, whether things on heaven or whether things on earth are things in heaven. The person of Jesus is and will always be what God ultimately has to say to humanity. May we allow Jesus to be first in everything, including our proclamation and demonstration of the gospel.